years from Mark 10. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw that he was indignant, he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. As Jesus starts on his way, a man went up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Peter answered. No one is good except God alone. You know this you know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, on your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you have said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went to his side because he had great wealth. Jesus looked round and said to the disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who thinks you say? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. They have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters, or mother or father, or children or fields, or the eternal gospel, who fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, or fields, along with the persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem when Jesus leading the way with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what were going what was going to happen to them to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. 
Three days later, he arrived. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do I to do for you? he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? You can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the time heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be the servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man does not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the way. Hi, my name is Josh. I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch. Thank you so much for joining our live stream this morning, whether you're a regular or whether this is your first time tuning in. I'm going to speak to us on Mark chapter 10 in a moment, the passage that we just had read. But it may be that you need to take a moment just before we begin to get yourself settled, or maybe if you need uh, your, to occupy your children with something. Um, and certainly you might want to use this time to get a Bible if you don't already have one open or open on your phone. I'm going to be referring to the passage quite a lot, so please do make sure you use this time to get yourself a Bible so that you can follow along. And while you're doing that, let me just flag up to you the live chat section that we have here at the side of the screen. Uh, later in the week, we put out another video and it's Q&A of things that, uh, that were raised in the sermon or the Bible passage that we didn't get a chance to cover as deeply as we'd have liked. And so if a question comes up while I'm talking, then feel free to go ahead and fire a question into that Q&A or if you'd rather do it a bit more um, privately, at the bottom of the picture where you can open the description section, you'll find a link there to a contact form and you can always fill in a question and send that to us. And we'll look to try and think about that and record you a good answer for later on in the week. And finally, uh, as you might be getting back, uh, but before we get started in earnest, if you would like to have a written copy of what I'm going to say so you can follow along as well as listen, you'll also find a transcript in the description in the links just below this picture. Okay, got your colouring sorted, got your craft sorted, snacks, brew, let's go. Let me pray to begin with. Father God, we pray that you will open 
our eyes this morning. That we would see Jesus as he is and be captivated by him. We pray that we would humbly come to him with hands open and find in him our joy and fullness. And that by your spirit, as we listen to your word preached, we would become more and more like him. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the ways that I've found myself struggling during lockdown is that I find myself really losing my sense of perspective. It does that to you, doesn't it? When you're stuck in the same environment, the same routine, the same company or not, day in and day out. And the things that used to be really minor irritations have now suddenly become great big issues. If you came to my home, you'd see that I really, really care about how the bowls are stacked in the cupboard. The big ones have to go on the bottom and the smallest ones have to go somewhere else. It really matters to me, more than it should, that all the toys and books that are strewn across the living room get put back at the end of the day and in the right place. It is essential that we keep the daily items like pens and chargers and slippers in the right place, where they belong, so that I know where to find them later on. Anyone who's lived or worked with me before might know that maybe those issues were already there before this. But lockdown just gives me the right conditions to fan those into flame, to turn tiny little things into big issues. And when you lose perspective, when the little things become big, and when those big things, the things that really matter, just, just take a back seat, well, it's destructive. It's an outlook that affects everything about me. It affects my decisions, what I'm going to do next. It trickles down into the way I treat other people. And really, it's a recipe for misery and conflict. So part of my daily challenge is to keep reminding myself that what is small really is small. Bowls are bowls. But what is big matters most. Now Mark 10 is a great passage to help reorient that perspective. And not just in the small irritations of lockdown, but actually for the whole of our life outside of lockdown as well. Because we'll see that when we meet Jesus in this passage this morning, he exposes our hearts and shows us those little things that we have made big. But we'll also see that Jesus is a bright ray of hope shining into that misery. And if we get our perspective right, it opens up a way to, to great comfort in the difficulties and great blessing. It's a fairly long passage that we're looking at, so here's how it breaks down. First, we're going to be meeting some people who've totally got their perspective on God all skewed. So much so that they're going to try and bribe God to get what they want. We're then going to move on to see that the disciples, even though they know Jesus, even the disciples get their perspective wrong. And they think that Jesus is able to serve them into greatness. So they want to use Jesus. And finally, we're going to meet a blind man who can see clearer than them all. So let's dive into Mark chapter 10 and see how easy it is 
to skew our perspective. And we start by seeing how we fall into thinking that we can bribe God. That's the first part, bribing God. I used to work as a teacher in a college, and part of any teacher's job, of course, is marking assignments. And I was always struck and horrified by how many students, 16 and 17-year-olds, thought that copying and pasting off the internet was a legitimate way of writing an essay. One way that we tried to solve that in one college was that we had this piece of software that would uh, scan read every single essay and would magically cross-reference it with everywhere on the internet and other students' work. And it would come up with a percentage originality score and it would highlight all the bits that were copied and plagiarised. But the students tried to get around that by copying and pasting and then changing a word or two here or there to say it's, it's not the same, it's what I wrote. Now, of course, the originality score helped. Instead of it saying it's 100% the same as Wikipedia, it's now only 80% the same as Wikipedia. And we had to explain to the students that you, you can't do that. That's still not right. But then they would raise the question, what is the number where I can uh, say that it's mine? What is the score for originality where I can say that this is really my work? How many words do I need to change when I copy and paste it so that I can say it's my own work? Is, does it have to be 60% similar to Wikipedia? Would that still be bad? What if it's 50% similar? Now, of course, from my perspective, somebody trying to teach them trying to help them grow in their knowledge. It was infuriating that the concept of learning something new, of digesting it, of thinking it through and applying it, and then knowing it so well that you could explain it to someone else, that concept didn't even register with them. They didn't want to do the learning. They just wanted to pass the exam, and they needed to know how close to the limit you could go. 49% copied off Wikipedia. Well done you. You're the expert now. And it's this type of attitude that Jesus finds at the beginning of Mark chapter 10. The Pharisees, who are a religious group, come up to him. And in verse 2, have a look down. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And in verse 4, they answer, well, yeah, actually, if you look at the law, it says that it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, Jesus has to explain to them, just like I was explaining to the college students, that this isn't actually how it's meant to work. Jesus goes back into Genesis and the pattern of creation and explains that this isn't God's pattern for human relationships. It's not the ideal. It's not what we aspire to. He explains that God's pattern for marriage is permanence. And where the law does say about divorce, it's only given because in our sinfulness, we can't keep it. It's given as a concession, not as convenience or a permission. And that's how we should read verses 11 and 12, where Jesus seems to state it pretty sharply. 
where he is, seems like he's saying that anyone who has ever been divorced and remarried, well, that's just wrong, they're committing adultery. But this isn't a passage for Christians to use to beat people around the head who've been divorced and then gotten remarried and to pour judgment on them. Rather, this is a passage for married people where Jesus says, don't you dare think that the law's concession on divorce means that uh, you can go around turning your head, seeing whoever you want, taking your pick of somebody, divorcing your spouse and running off with someone else and saying, well, it's okay because God's law says I can. And now, there is more to say on the Bible's teaching about divorce. And here might be a time where you've got lots of burning questions that you're hoping to get answered and they need to go into the, the live chat for now because Jesus isn't using this so that we can really understand everything there is to say about divorce. And I recognise that's a sensitive and difficult subject for many. But Jesus is actually addressing what is going on in the Pharisee's heart behind the question. Because what the Pharisees are doing is something that I see myself doing quite a lot. They are trying to ask the question, how can I appease God rather than please him? They're telling themselves that this moral lifestyle that they're living can appease God and keep me in his good books because after all, I'm doing what's lawful. Instead of actually loving God, relating to him, knowing him, and getting to know and to love the things that he loves. And so what they're doing is they are excusing their sin by saying it's lawful. And this kind of thing is illustrated again when we meet another religious man in verse 17. Have a look down with me at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And again, the question betrays the heart of the man behind it. He's asking, what does God want so that I can give it to him and get back what I want so that I can have eternal life? What can I do to appease God? What have I got to do? Now, the man insists he's kept all of God's commands in verse 20. And Jesus is brilliant. He doesn't argue with the man. He doesn't say, well, look, there are some that you haven't kept. You haven't really kept them all. He actually challenges the whole premise of what the man is trying to do. He doesn't say that there's something he hasn't done. He says there's something he doesn't have. Verse 21, he says, if you were to give away what you have and give your possessions to the poor, then you will have it. It's treasure in heaven. Because behind both this man and the Pharisees' religious efforts is this perspective on God that's way out of whack. Their questions are trying to negotiate with God because what they have in the foreground, uh, really big in their perspective, is actually living life the way they want to and keeping God in the background at arm's length. So they negotiate, what can I give to God to keep him off my back? What can I give to God so that I can live the life I want to live, do it my own way, but still tell myself that I'm in God's good books? They, they want to bribe God. 
because they view God as a taker, not as a giver. They see him as a tyrant who, who demands, not as a treasure to be enjoyed. Do you see that that perspective is so twisted? Do you recognise that perspective? I've got to confess, I, I find this all too easy. To, to put my agenda in the foreground. To think about what I want. My loves, the things that, that are non-negotiable for me. Put my plans, my goals or ambitions first. And then to say, well, what can I do to kind of keep God happy about it? What can I do to make it lawful? And by doing that, the irony is there in verse 22. The man had great wealth. But because of that, he went away sad. When he made his wealth the thing he loved, when he made that big and God's treasure small, when he saw God as a taker who threatened that wealth rather than a giver of eternal treasure, well, it made him go away sad. And even Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, he hadn't quite got this in verse 28. He's still thinking in terms of giving and taking. He says to Jesus, well, look, I've given everything. So surely if I've given, then I do get what God is offering. But Jesus tells him in verse 29, look, Peter, you think you've given everything, but you're not the generous one here. God hasn't got need of that. He's the one who, verse 29 and 30, he's the one who lavishes honours a hundred times more than we could give to him. Eternal life isn't to be negotiated. This is if we've got something to give to God. No, eternal life's not to be negotiated. It's just to be received freely. God's not a taker. He's not withholding anything that we can bribe out of him with religious works. And sandwiched between these two examples of the Pharisee and uh, the religious man, sandwiched between them is the beautiful picture of what the right perspective looks like. Little children, they've got no agenda, no negotiation, nothing in their hands. They just want to get close. They want to get close into Jesus. They're not trying to hold him at arm's length to get what they want from this. They just come as they are. They come to him to love him and to receive from a kind giver. But this sort of religion goes against our expectations. Look at the disciples in verse 13. They shoo the children away. It's not what we think it should look like. But I, I wonder whether that is the perspective that's behind so much of our spiritual lethargy. If you know what I'm talking about, you'll feel it. It's draining to keep trying to appease this demanding boss who, who's got impossible standards. And to do that, it'll threaten the things that are big in my perspective. It threatens my wealth or my, my goals, my job, my career, my home, my comfort. And so if it threatens that, well, it just is something that causes me to walk away sad. But the right perspective, that God is a giver, that Jesus is a blesser, well, with that perspective, getting close to him is the big thing not keeping him quiet in the background. This right perspective makes our agenda small, 
and God's treasure big. And we need to be humble enough to receive from him, open-handed and empty-handed, with no negotiation. Of course, the question for us then is, how do we get that? How do we get that perspective? How can we become like those children? And the point is that we can't do it on our own. Verse 27, Jesus says, it would be actually easier to get a great big old camel through the actual eye of, of a tiny little sewing needle. It's easier to, to do that than it is for us to, to let go of what is big, to make it small, and, and to yearn for God's treasure. It's impossible. Unless God does a miracle for us. I mean, that's the whole point. You can't learn to receive by working at it and so earning something, this ability to do it, you can only learn to receive by receiving. And so we can only have this view by God working a miracle in us, by doing the impossible thing for us. So having exposed us, Jesus drives us empty-handed and open-handed to receive from God his endless treasures. But Mark moves on to show us in the second place, that even this good perspective can be skewed if we've got the wrong posture. There are two postures somebody can take if they depend on somebody. You could be like a master who depends on his servants to serve him. Or you could be like a servant who, who depends on his master to meet his needs. And that's what Mark is gonna show us in the next two sections, as he shows us the posture of dependence that means we try and use Jesus, and then the posture of dependence that realizes we need Jesus. So in verses 32 to 45, we see that the disciples have got their perspective all wrong because, well, they are taking a posture of trying to use Jesus. Jesus is asked a question again, verse 35, by James and John, who are some of his closest friends. I don't know about you, but doesn't this question then, verse 35, just jump out at you as pretty audacious? Look down at verse 35. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's the mistake in their perspective. We've gone from one extreme to the other here, of course. Uh, the religious man in verse 18 said, what can I do to appease the demanding God? Whereas James and John say, well, what can I get? What can I take? How can I exploit the giving God? Both are wrong because both put ourselves at the center. Both hold self up close so that in our perspective, we are the biggest thing. And both imagine that we can then get Jesus to serve us maybe by forcing his arm by our religious works, or maybe just by exploiting how generous he is. And the problem with both is their posture. They stand tall, hoping to be served and recognized. And their request, verse 37, is that they have places of honor at the top table in Jesus' glory. And Jesus replies to them, but again, it's not straightforward because he's not trying to answer their question, but he's trying to challenge it. He says, he doesn't say, here's how you can follow me in such a way that then you gain honour, but rather he says, following me is not even about gaining honour, but about honouring others. It's not about gaining status, 
but giving up status to put others first. His own example shows that. Verse 32 to 34, he says that he has come to suffer and die. And what he tells James and John about his cup that he drinks and his baptism in verses 38 and 39, that's his way of talking about his suffering. In other words, Jesus rejects this idea that following him is a way to get him to serve you and bring you up to greatness, to gather people around you that can look at your greatness. So says Jesus, no, I'm not in the business of ranking you so that some people get on the top table. Rather, if you follow me, you'll follow me. You'll take my lead. You'll go where I go and copy what I do. You'll copy me when I stoop down, when I give up position, when instead of gaining honour, I give honour. He didn't come, verse 45, to be served, but to serve. Once again, do you recognise this attitude? I'm embarrassed here in the presence of Jesus. He cuts through my outward show where I quite like people to think I'm great and it exposes that I believe two things that can't both be true. I want to follow Jesus and I want people to serve me and recognize how great I am. I want to follow Jesus and I want the people around me to well to be below me to to serve me and Jesus says you can't have both of those things. They're not compatible. You cannot follow Jesus and get other people to serve you. Jesus gives us this right perspective, though. He reorients it by taking the greatness that is big in our vision and puts it in its place, makes that small, and he magnifies others' needs to show that others are what's big, not you. Even in verse 44, he goes so far as to say that even my rights that seem so big in my view and my freedom, he makes them small because he says, whoever wants to be first shall be slave of all. And that's what Jesus is all about. Just take one look at him, what he does. He's not full of empty advice. He lived this out. We're told in verse 21, when he saw the rich man, he looked at him and loved him. He didn't get one up on him, he loved him. And Jesus says in verses 32 to 34, he's going to Jerusalem. And what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem is exactly what he said. He went there and was condemned to be executed. He was abused. He was humiliated and crucified. And he did that in order to put others first, because his death, verse 45, tells us was a ransom for many. It's actually the truth about us is, is this strange paradox that we, we so desperately want to put others beneath us in order to serve us. But we actually do really desperately need serving. Not because we're great, but because we're needy. Two types of people need serving. The great need serving because they are so great. They deserve serving. And the poor and helpless and weak and needy 
They need serving because they're so helpless. Jesus died because we are so helpless, so helpless to see straight, so helpless to really see what is big and what is small, what is important and what's not. Our sight is so messed up that we put us on top, people beneath, and God out somewhere in a corner, held at arm's length by our good deeds. This messed up sight, is our, this blindness holds us captive until Jesus pays the ransom to free us from it. His perfect servant life, his obedient servant death, it was not for him, it was for us. All so that we might receive the impossible miracle to see rightly so that we can treasure Jesus and follow him on the path of putting others first. So the posture I need to learn isn't the posture of the master who gathers servants beneath him to praise his greatness, but the posture of the servant who is in desperate need. And Mark wraps up this whole chapter by showing us what this looks like. And this is the third part, needing Jesus, needing Jesus. Because the person who can see clearly in this passage, the person in this passage who's got the right view of Jesus, the person who is so clear-sighted in recognizing who Jesus truly is, the man who has the perspective spot on, the man who's got the best clarity of vision, is the blind man. Mark wants us to see Bartimaeus in contrast to James and John. He's told us about James and John earlier that they were the sons of Zebedee. I don't know who Zebedee was. It sounds like pointless information. But he's doing that to set up the contrast with the son of Timaeus. This is a story about two sons. And the question that Jesus asked James and John in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Well, it's the exact same question that he asks the son of Timaeus in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? But Bartimaeus sees everything just right. See, he calls out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The word son of David is, is actually a reference to the fact that in the Old Testament, the best king was promised a son a descendant who would reign on God's throne forever, live forever, and be wonderful, and be the one who brings in God's kingdom. He's known as the Messiah, or the Christ. Bartimaeus is showing us that it's not only the disciples who know Jesus is the Christ, but he knows it too. He calls him son of David. But unlike the disciples, his posture before the Christ is not one of somebody expecting to be served but as the humble servant, poor and needy, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't stand tall and ask for his greatness to be acknowledged. He bends low and acknowledges his need. He's not negotiating or bribing so that he can get. He's got open and empty hands. He sees well, he sees himself as small and Jesus as great. Son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus calls him near, he simply asks for what all of us would ask for if we came with a proper posture before God's king. He asks for the, for the miracle that we all need to have our sight put right 
clear vision, proper posture, right perspective. Mark uh, often uses the outward condition of somebody to, to reflect their inward condition. He's done it before. And here in this passage, there's this glorious resolution, this beautiful resolution of attention that is in Bartimaeus. Because all along, Bartimaeus does see clearly. He sees himself as small and Jesus as big. He sees himself unworthy, but Jesus as merciful. He sees his need, and yet Jesus is the one who can supply it. So the miracle of sight on the outside is simply doing on the outside what was already true of him inside, what Jesus had already done to him. And this, this is the solution to all of our wonky perspectives to come humbly, open-handed to Jesus. There's this glorious paradox of coming both in the humility of the dust and out into the freedom and dignity of being accepted by Jesus. Coming in the misery of self uh, and yet coming out into the joy of finding ourselves in Jesus. And so our request of Jesus should be for him to work this impossible thing for us. For us to see rightly. To shrink these things that cloud our vision, that, that are too big in our perspective, they're right in front of our face, to shrink them down. The things we love, our comfort, our status, our ambition, our greatness. And to ask him to make big the things that we just look down on and disdain. Other people. Other people's needs. Lowly, self-giving sacrifice. And the truth is that this humble posture and this right perspective, that's the door to the great delight and the true treasure and contentment. And by lowering ourselves, well, that's actually the door to true greatness that we're designed for. This is the humble posture that caused John Newton to write way back in the 18th century. He said, I feel like a man who has no money, comes low, but is allowed to draw for all he wants upon, upon one infinitely rich. I am therefore at once a beggar and a rich man. Well, that's what's at stake here for you in following Jesus, according to Mark 10. Not, not the call to be religious, keep God at bay, do your bit for him, but the call to run close. The call to come low as needy, a needy beggar before the king and finding that by coming low, we're brought high. Here's a call to acknowledge our need, but by acknowledging our need, we are filled up. The call to serve others, but by serving others, we are doing what is truly great. It's in living that out that the treasure is really found. And that's the call that I want to make to you this morning. In the words of verse 49, cheer up. On your feet, he is calling you. Cheer up, there is something great about this. There is light, there is this beam of hope reaching into our gloom that we can hold on to. So cheer up on your feet. He is calling you. 
And I say that to you if you've been a Christian for your whole life, or if today is your first time tuning in and you're coming with uh, skepticism, or you're not really sure. The call's the same. We need to recover that perspective. To, to know to make the little things the little things, and the big things the big things. And to do that, we need to humbly ask for God's help to do the impossible thing of opening our eyes to how small we really are and how great the treasure that is Jesus Christ really is. Do that today. Let's pray. We ask for your mercy, Lord, that we may see. We don't want a crooked perspective that blows up so many wicked things to take the place that they shouldn't do. We don't want that because that is leaving us miserable, sad, in conflict with each other. Lord, we want to open our eyes so that we can really understand that serving others is greatness because we don't believe that. Lord, please open our eyes to see the treasure in Jesus. That we might elevate him as the great one. Run to him for closeness and come open handed and empty handed. To receive from you the impossible thing. That you'd fix our sight. We ask in Jesus name. Amen.